Welcome to Corpus Christi Parish. I'm Jane Richardson. I'm the director of liturgy here at the church. And I'd like to welcome you all on behalf of Monsignor Kidney, Father Dennis, and our Deacon Cesar. It's wonderful to have you in our space here this evening. And this is part of our series, uh, a priest, a rabbi, and a sheikh walk into a coffee bar. <laughs> and um, this is year two, and we've found it to be a very uh, intriguing, helpful, uh, very vibrant series to bring us all together and hopefully a venue where we can learn more about each other's tradition. That's really how we would like everyone to be able to leave knowing more than when, when we arrived. Tonight's topic is the role of women in our faith traditions. And so I'm very much looking forward to this discussion, being a woman who works for the Roman Catholic Church. Um, and our panelists this evening are Monsignor Liam Kidney, the pastor of Corpus Christi, Rabbi Amy Bernstein of Kehilath Israel Reconstructionist Congregation here in the Palisades, and Imam Muhammad Lakhani of the King Fayed Mosque in Culver City. And it's been the tradition in this series that the host begins the talk with a little bit about the space that we're in. So I'd like to invite Monsignor Kidney to talk to us a little bit about Corpus Christi Church. And I'd like to add my welcome to Jane's welcome. It is a blessing that we're here together and with God's help, as Jane said, to be able to learn a little bit more about each other. Now, many of you, I'm sure most of you, have been in a Catholic sacred space before, all right? If you haven't, you're truly welcome. And if this is your first time in a Catholic sacred space, Notice the roof did not fall in, all right? So we are delighted that you're here. Now, I intentionally did not say, maybe it is the first time in a Catholic church, because in our Catholic thinking, the word church does not mean a building. The word church means a community of people. So we are gathered here in a sacred space. And the technical name we have for this sacred space is Domus Ecclesiae, which means the home for the church. So this is the home for our church. The church are the people. Without the people, this is an empty space. With the people, it becomes the home for the church. So there's your first little thing about our space here. All right? Now, the other thing you'll notice tonight is when you walk in, there's lots of purple. And that's because we have already begun our sacred season of Lent. And Lent is the beginning of our journey from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. So the purple reminds us we're on a journey and we are on the way to Jerusalem. So our journey is from where we are to Jerusalem. Now along the way, during the course of 40 days, a lot of different things are going to happen. So the purple tells us it's not necessarily 
going to be a pleasant journey. All right? So we're not traveling first class here. And the idea is the journey is an opportunity for us to change. So the purple reminds us the journey is an opportunity for us to change. That is to become different from where we are. So by the time we get to Jerusalem, we're new people. Now everybody will still recognize you. But the idea is that maybe we'll change a little bit by the time we get to Jerusalem. So that's the purple thing. The idea is take away all distractions and all things that could lead us astray and we're going to focus on where we're going. In the Catholic Church, there are basically four pieces of furniture that make a Catholic Church, all right? The first piece of furniture is the altar, all right? And the altar is rooted in the Old Testament, all right? The altar of sacrifice. So the altar was a place where they had living sacrifice in the sense of lambs or goats or whatever it was they offered to their God. So the altar takes us back to the Old Testament. Now for us as Catholics, the new sacrifice on the altar is not a lamb, it's not a goat. The new sacrifice on the altar for us is our Jesus. That our Jesus was sacrificed on the altar. So that's our theology in connection with the altar. But you will remember, most of you, another word for Jesus is, we call him the Lamb of God. So Jesus replaces the old Lamb, and Jesus becomes the new Lamb. So the main piece of furniture is the altar. Then the next piece of furniture, right behind Jane right here, this is the ambo. Right Again, all Jewish synagogues have an ambo. And it is a place where we read the sacred scriptures from. So we read the scriptures from here. Uh, I would much prefer if our ambo was more like it was in your sacred space, which is a big open area where you can roll out the scriptures. Catholics got too practical. They got rid of the rolls and they turned it into a book. So the result is the ambo is smaller. But it's the same concept. The sacred word of God comes from the ambo. Then the third piece of furniture is right here, right behind the Muhammad right here, and that is the chair. And the chair symbolizes that somebody is in charge. So whoever sits in that chair, they're in charge. And so the chair is very important to us. Because when we gather as a people, we don't gather scattered and confused. We gather for ritual and for liturgy. And the ritual has been with us, the modern part of our ritual, 2,000 years old. But when we go back to our Jewish brothers and sisters, our ritual goes back 4,000 years. So the idea is the person here is the person who leads the ritual, and they're supposed to know what they're doing. We, we need one of those chairs. <laughs> we need one of those. <laughs> so that somebody takes charge, you see, when you come in. 
And then the fourth piece of furniture, you would never guess. And I use the terminology loosely, so I don't want anybody to be offended, all right? The fourth, the fourth piece of furniture in a Catholic space is the people. The people are as important as any one of these three items that I've mentioned. Because without the people, we do not have a ritual. Without the people, we do not have liturgy. Without the people, we do not have church. And so the people are an essential part of our space. Now, anything else? This little area over here that you see tonight is a desert area. And it's reminding us of two desert experiences. One is the chosen people, 40 years in the desert, wandering through the desert from the captivity in Egypt to the freedom of the promised land. And that's the 40 years. Our Lent is 40 days, based upon that same symbolic number. And then the desert also reminds us of our Jesus. Our Jesus spent 40 days in the desert on the way to Jerusalem. And he had a tough time for 40 days because there was a guy there with him named the devil. And the devil gave him a tough time for those 40 days. If you want to read about that, I'll tell you where to find it, all right? And so that's this desert little scene right here to remind us of that. And I think then you see the candle, the single candle over here. That's our Easter candle, which is a reminder to us of the resurrection of Jesus. That candle is used in all baptisms and funerals. It's a symbol of new life. So every time we light it, it's associated with new life. And then over here in our little alcove where you see the candles, there's a very traditional thing in the Catholic Church. People come and light candles on behalf of their loved ones who've passed on, or they light candles to symbolize a prayer. Maybe they're praying for something special, so they light the candle to symbolize their prayer. If you could see under the blue drape there, that is a statue of the Blessed Mother, which is very appropriate for our topic tonight, the role of women in our different traditions. Jay. So we'd like to start with um, understanding a little bit about the role of women in each of our faith traditions represented here. So maybe each of you could speak a little bit about what it means to be a gendered human being in your faith tradition. Um, why don't we start with Rabbi Amy? Women first. Ladies <laughs> first. Yeah. <laughs> Even though uh, in the story of Genesis, right, um, it wasn't women first. And it is often where people look um, within our tradition and traditions that base themselves on that text as well. Um, often it is a misapprehension of that text that, uh, that because man was created first, it somehow means that man uh, is understood by even the people exploring that story to be superior. Uh, so, um, so in talking about being a gendered human being within the Jewish tradition, I think we have within the Jewish tradition the full range of what you would expect in 
in religious tradition around the role of men and the role of women. Um, we're a very uh, old tradition in terms of our roots being 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. And in that tradition, it was very much like the traditional societies around it. Early Israel understood the private sphere as being the sphere of women and men were in the public sphere. And those were very separate spaces and they were very separate domains. And so women were largely in charge of the domestic, um, meaning the, the family relationships and everything that happened within the private life of the extended clan. Men were responsible for interactions between clans and for certain, um, certain things which included protecting the women of the clan. And that's how the honor, women's honor, becomes such a huge issue uh, in the ancient Near East, in the ancient Jewish tradition. Um, women's honor was a way of measuring the relative strength of the men of the clan. Um, those folks who are looking to stay very close to a traditional model of gender relationships and gender roles still within Orthodox Judaism, for example, have a very clear definition of what's appropriate in terms of behavior and domain um, for men and women. So that men um, are charged with learning, they're charged with engaging with the world uh, and, the, and the world of um, society, if you will. Women are charged with the home and dealing with all of the many complicated rituals and laws that make a Jewish home uh, a Jewish home according to Jewish law. Um, they are charged with the rearing of the children, um, and so they are largely charged with everything within that private sphere of family. Interestingly, though, um, throughout Jewish history, because men were understood to, once we leave ancient Israel and we move into other parts of Jewish history, even within a very traditional worldview, um, men were supposed to be learning Torah. And the highest call was that they should be studying Torah. If they're studying Torah, who's paying the bills? So even within a very traditional understanding of gender roles, if men are called to study Torah all day and they're a brilliant Torah scholar and that's the highest thing they could be within our tradition, it meant that the women were running the businesses. Women were running the family businesses. Women were keeping the books. Women were paying the bills and dealing with the home and family. So it's a very interesting juxtaposition, anthropologically, um, to have a very traditional worldview and very clear gender roles um, and yet have women be the ones engaged in commerce and the ones engaged with business. Within the Jewish world now, if we're talking about 2013 America, you have the full range of very traditional understandings around gender roles all the way through um, reform and reconstructionist Judaism, which I'm happy to say um, give full equality in both ritual and every other domain of religious and social life, complete equality to men and women. Um, nothing is defined solely by gender in terms of what one's role is within the tradition or within family or within other, um, other situations. I think certainly we have norms and standards as Americans. Uh, maybe even some people would argue 
um, natural tendencies towards one or the other. Um, but uh, So we have differences. I'm not saying we don't have differences, but, um, but in terms of what one chooses to do within the religious tradition of the, uh, the progressive movements of Judaism, of Reform and Reconstructionism, we are completely uh, egalitarian. So we have the full range now of very traditional, very gendered relationships to roles and responsibilities all the way through complete egalitarianism. And we are Reconstructionists, I should be clear. At KI, we are Reconstructionists. So I am um, rabbi the same way that Rabbi Rubin is. Um, and, and I do want to say one more thing quickly before I close, and that is that um, even though we have egalitarianism within our traditions, there's still a glass ceiling. And women still, in general, do not take flagship congregations. They are rabbis. They are given the same status, but there is still gender bias even in progressive Judaism, and so women tend not to be senior rabbis of the largest congregations. KI is the largest Reconstructionist synagogue in the world. It is one of the first to, by naming me the successor to Rabbi Rubin, to have, will have um, a woman rabbi as the head of a flagship congregation in this country. So it is certainly at the cutting edge of, of life. Amy, maybe you can update my information quickly. Um, uh, my understanding is there are 106 uh, synagogues in the U.S. that have um, a woman as a senior, or, or 106 synagogues, 24 of them as of about six or seven years ago had a woman as a senior or assistant rabbi. Is, is that still about the correct? In the Reconstructionist movement? Yeah. 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 Okay. But the larger congregations are still headed by men. But now a woman will be at the largest reconstruction. Go Palisades. Go Palisades. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, why don't we move along in order of um, uh, the uh, the age of the religion. I was going to then go to uh, Monsignor Kidney, and we started with 3,000 years ago with um, uh, Judaism, and let's um, go to the 2,000-year-old Christian tradition. I would say that... um Amy's description historically in um, through your anthropology and so on like that, we would as a Christian people and as a Catholic people be very close to the way Amy described the history of the clan and the development of civilization through Judaism. However, when we move into what would be known as the Christian era, our focus for the role of women turns to Mary. And Mary for us is the most unique and most special human being, female, ever created. Now for us, Mary was the mother of Jesus. And so when we look for the model of femininity and we look for the model of a gender-based person, we look to Mary for that model. And we find in Mary, first of all, a woman of faith and a woman who put her trust in a loving God and who responded to her God. And in responding to her God became what for us as Christians, 
the most important element in our salvation history. And that is that she said yes to her God. And the fact that she said yes gave us our Jesus. So her not saying yes would have changed the whole history of Christianity. Her saying yes gave us our Jesus. Then her being a mother to our Jesus all the way through until his suffering and death and resurrection, we would see her as a key model for all of us, male and female. We literally describe Mary as the first disciple. You know, everybody knows about the 12 apostles. Mary was way ahead of the 12 apostles. So we describe her as the first disciple. And as the first disciple, in our Catholic tradition, men and women model themselves on this woman and her relationship with her God. So for us, our dream is that we would have the same relationship with God that she had. Now let me reassure you, Father Kidney is a long way from that. But that's our dream that we would have that relationship. So our model starts with Mary, the mother of Jesus, when we think about the role of women in our faith, the role of women in our church, and not just as a model for women, but a model for all of us. Mom Muhammad, would you like to talk to that point? The role of woman and man in Islam is exactly the same. Oh, I'm a soft-spoken person, so I'll try to speak up. The role of woman and man in Islam is exactly the same. And I would say, or I would use other words, the goal of man and the goal of a woman, a Muslim man and a Muslim woman, is exactly the same. Uh, man and woman equally were created by God, and we are in this world to worship God, to recognize God, to please God, to obey God, and stay away from the prohibitions of God. Now, worship, in Islam there are five pillars, and those five pillars, uh, one is testifying to the faith and reciting the faith, uh, the kalima, which is la ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. There is no one worthy of worship but God, Allah, and Muhammad is his last and final messenger. So this is the proclamation, first part. Second, praying five times a day. Men and women are equal in it. Third, giving charity to the needy and poor. Women are men. Women and men are equal in this. Uh, 
fasting in the month of Ramadan, uh, one month, uh, which is the ninth month of the Islamic year, women and men are the same, and doing the pilgrimage to Mecca, to the holy city of Mecca, and visiting the house which is called the Kaaba, uh, we believe, and it's in our scriptures, that this was the first house created by God in this world. Uh, we believe that the angels uh, built the foundation, and we believe from Adam till the last messenger, they all visited this place and they worshipped there, and Abraham built the foundation that we see today. So these are the five pillars, and through these five pillars, we attain uh, spirituality, we attain closeness to God, and men and women are equal. Now, there are differences as far as how, uh, because of the bio biology of man and biology of the woman, there might be some differences. For example, if uh, the lady has a child or the, the child is suckling or she's in menstruation, then there are some differences. But those differences are not because they're inferior. In fact, at that time, the worship that God wants from that lady is to take care of the child or take care of the home and whatnot. And in that way, she will still achieve spirituality. Uh, if we, you know, we look at the Muslim world today and unfortunately we see a culture of one country, a culture of this country, a culture of that country. But me, I'm, uh, you know, my father is born in India and uh, my mother is from Pakistan, and when, when we see that culture over there, we don't see Islam. We don't see the Qur'an sometimes. We don't see the sayings of the Prophet sometimes. We see a culture that in the beginning, you know, the women were supposed to be protected because of the way the world was, and the man was aggressive, and in the time the Qur'an came down uh, was revealed, you know, it was in a desert and there were wars and battles and the women were supposed to be protected. Now that protection uh, is misinterpreted today and the lady is actually in the house most of the time and she is just taking care of the children, which is all, of course, a great worship, but uh, because of her staying back so much and being silent so much, uh, the world, the way it should be, it's lopsided. And there's much chaos in the world because men have come up and they are very aggressive sometimes in many places. And sometimes, you know, we magnify the places like in the mountains of Afghanistan and the mountains of some third world country which don't even have schools. It's not just that the women are not getting educated, the men are also not getting educated. And they're misinterpreting the Qur'an. 
um, I was listening to a, a convert to Islam, an uh, American lady. Her name is Amina Aslami. She's passed away now. She said that there are more PhD women in Pakistan than there are in the whole of America. So we see Pakistan in such a, a different way, but we don't see where there is education, there's a lot of growth. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, we see progress. Um, you know, it's been 200 years or 200 plus years in America and the 44th president of America is Barack Obama. Uh, in 1996, the prime minister of Pakistan was a woman. And it was only about 50 years after the independence of Pakistan. So that shows that the women were ahead also. Um, the previous two presidents of Indonesia, which is the largest land of the Muslims, largest population of where Muslims live, right now the president is, or the previous president was a lady. Uh, and, you know, right next to Pakistan, there is a, there's a country... Bangladesh, right now the, the, the Prime Minister of Bangladesh is a lady. She's a Muslim lady. And the, uh, her name is Sheikh Hasina. And before her, there was also a lady. And these are Muslim women who came to the top. So, if you look at the, the s- scripture of Islam, if you look at the Quran, and if you look at the sayings and the traditions of the Prophet, you will see that Quran described the lady in a beautiful way that no other scripture has described. And the relationship between a man and woman described in the Quran is just too beautiful. There is no relationship that is mentioned more in the Quran than the one of the husband and the wife. And it is amazing. It's very beautiful. Um, the most of our knowledge that we get after the Prophet Muhammad is from a lady whose name is Aisha. And some scholars say we get half of our knowledge from her. And, you know, at that time, uh, in the earlier times, the women, they had a large part in teaching the women and they had a large part in teaching the men. They were scholars. And throughout time, unfortunately, uh, we've lost that. And today we see it. We see it in most of the world. Uh, you know, the, the rights that the women enjoyed at that time, slowly we have lost that. And now when the people look at these Muslim countries, they don't see the scripture being implemented, they actually see a culture. And Islam has been imprisoned in this culture of, you know, ignorance. When this Quran, when it was revealed, it was radical. Why? Because they could not believe that women can have a right. You know, women didn't even have a right to live. If a child was born a woman, then at that time, you know, uh, there are verses in the Quran that are saying that this is a prohibition. You cannot do this. This is 
you know, oppression. And they were actually buried alive. They didn't have a right to, to inherit money. They didn't have a right to vote. And, you know, if you look in, you know, times right now, I think uh, it was in the 1800s that the women got the right to actually own property. And this is in England. And in the uh, 19th century, they got the right to vote. And I think Wisconsin was the first state that, you know, uh, approved this. And 1,400 years ago, the women had the right. They were equal, just like men, to have property, to vote, to be, to have a voice in society. Thank you. So I think that you have um, led us to perhaps uh, our next question, which um, maybe Rabbi Amy and Monsignor can take um, about dispelling some myths of women in your faith tradition that if there are some things that you believe uh, the general population thinks about women in your tradition that you would like to uh, correct their uh, assumptions. I would say that um, there are some myths about women in our Catholic tradition. And um, one of them is, you know, the whole idea of uh, women holding positions of authority in our Catholic tradition. We had an example just yesterday here locally of the role of women in the Catholic Church. Uh, Our deacon, Deacon Caesar, who I have asked to teach our sixth graders religion, he was going into the sixth grade class to teach religion. And um, he's been going in there a few weeks. So he arrived in the classroom, and as he arrived in the classroom, all the kids stood up. And they had never done that before. So he was wondering, he said, Well, maybe somebody told him to do that. And then whatever he did, he turned around and standing behind him was Sister Patricia. (laughs) So we know where the power is, all right? So there's a mythology in the church sometimes about where the power is. So like, for example, my, as a priest and as a pastor and as a Monsignor, in the Roman Catholic Church, my uh, immediate superior, my boss, all right, that I report to canonically is a woman. So if I end up uh, stepping out of line canonically, not keeping the canon law of the Catholic Church, the person whose office I end up in is a woman. And she is known as the chancellor of the archdiocese. You have the bishop and the next in line as regards authority in the archdiocese is the chancellor. And here in our archdiocese for the last 25, close to 30 years, a woman has been in that position in our archdiocese. And women, of course, in the tradition of the Catholic Church over a period of 2,000 years, the gift the Catholic Church gave was the gift of education. 
And when women went into the convents and into the monasteries and the abbeys, they became the most educated people in the community. And because of their education, became the leaders in their community. So when women were not even allowed to be educated, the Catholic Church was educating women who became these leaders and very influential people in society that indeed caused a lot of change in society in good ways. Thanks be to God. My mother uh, has always said to me, she says, you know, the Catholic Church would be way better off if they had a few women in charge. And uh, the bottom line is, there have been women that have influenced our church in so many ways over a period of 2,000 years. So for me, it's important that people know that being a woman in the sense of like being a part of our whole Catholic community in leadership is a wide open opportunity in our church. One of the sadnesses for me is, for example, using Jane here as an example, Jane uh, is our director of liturgy and worship here at Corpus Christi Parish. Highly qualified, academic young lady, and totally academically qualified for the job that she does. I will sometimes have her go to clergy meetings representing me, because in some areas of liturgy, she would be more qualified than I would be. And she will go to these meetings with other clergy. And we have had the experience where after the meeting is over, female clergy at those meetings will contact me and say that it's not appropriate that I should be sending Jane to represent me. And I say, why? And they say, well, she's not ordained clergy. And it should only be ordained clergy sitting around the table. I think that's a little confused thinking. And that kind of thinking, I think, well, it definitely hurts me. And it definitely, you know, would be disrespectful to Jane that in somehow she's not qualified to be at a meeting because she's not ordained. So we do not view that kind of thinking as good thinking. We view a Jane as totally qualified to speak for our church, to speak for our liturgy, and to speak for our ritual. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi Amy, the ordained woman sitting there, would you like? <laughs> Who was not that ordained person, by the way, who said that? She would never do that. Right, right, that's right. I graduated um, from rabbinical school. 
so it's, I mean, it's an interesting, it's an interesting set of questions. I mean, to say, I mean, it, on one level, the women are, or whoever's calling and saying she shouldn't be at the table because she's not ordained clergy on the one hand, any kind of behavior that says you're not one of us is already, okay, interesting, like what's that about? But on some level, the, the church acknowledges that she could, she wouldn't be ordained clergy like you. They won't ordain her. So the church, the church itself is saying something about Jane because she's female means she can't be ordained. Mm-hmm. So even the church recognizes that there's a level of authority or a level of something that you have as a male that she'll never have. And so calling that out and saying that that's the truth is that she won't be ordained clergy because she's female. So, I mean, I, on one level, right, we don't want to otherize people and say, you can't be at the table, that's just silly. On the other hand, I think to call out the fact that, that even the church won't have her as their ordained clergy present, I, I think is, is naming something that's, mm-hmm. that's important to name. Um, so, um, misapprehensions about women in Judaism. The misapprehension is that we're loud and stubborn and pushy and opinionated. That is the misperception about Jewish women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, I think actually um, I share something with Mohammed about this. And um, for me, the biggest misapprehension within the Jewish world is actually not within my corner of the Jewish world, my sector of the Jewish world, but within the traditional Jewish world, that, that to have women be part of a much more traditional cultural understanding of gender relations and gender-based appropriate, for them, appropriate um, behaviors is not experienced by those women as oppression, so there are very beautiful things written by Jewish Orthodox feminists who say, it is insulting to me to assume that I don't have enough brains or intelligence or education to decide what kind of life it is that I want to lead as a woman. Now, do I, Amy Bernstein, want that life for myself or for my daughter? Absolutely not. Do I support another woman's right to make a choice that that's a meaningful way to be in the world and in relationship to her tradition and family? I absolutely support and defend her right as an intelligent, free-thinking human being to say, this is what's meaningful to me. And um, so I think that for me is a big misapprehension. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> in Islam, we have uh, basically an imam. And imam in Arabic means someone who is in front. Anybody can be an imam. Um, We don't even have to designate an imam for any mosque. Uh, Once the time of prayers come, anyone can come and lead whoever knows and has memorized and has knowledge of the Qur'an. Um... So, and even when we're standing in our rows, um, we're told to stand feet to feet and shoulders to shoulders, telling us that we are all equal in the sight of God. 
the only way that you can uh, become superior in the sight of God is through taqwa. The word taqwa is an Arabic word, um, very meaningful word, but what we can say is piety, righteousness, self-restraint, closeness to God, awareness of God. So whoever is the most righteous uh, will be more superior in the eyes of God. And what we do is the person leading the congregation is usually the person who is the most knowledgeable, the most well-versed in the Quran, and has the most piety, uh, apparent, apparently. Um, the woman in Islam does not become an imam. The woman in Islam does not become an imam, not because she's inferior, because some of the uh, duties of an imam, the woman might not be able to fulfill sometimes. For example, when she is uh, bearing a baby, or when she is in her monthly cycle, and when she has children, um, that she needs to take care of. So the imam has to be at the mosque five times a day and he has to be inside the mosque teaching and doing many other things which a woman sometimes not, might not be able to fulfill. But does that mean that she's inferior? No. Um, the amount of uh, respect that God gives to the woman in the Quran is amazing and in the traditions is one of the people came to the Prophet Muhammad and asked him uh, that who should I with my good conduct who should I deal with the best he said your mother then he asked then whom he said again your mother then he said then who your mother and then who then he said your father that's very Jewish <laughs> um, that is not of course literal but he's he's explaining something to us of how important motherhood is and some of the problems that we see in the world today the families are very dysfunctional and we see it all over the world we even see it in this part of the world that we live in and it sometimes has to do with the parents, mother and father, not, uh, you know, being with the child at all times. Family is center and fundamental. It's the foundation of Islam. And mother is a big part of that. The prophet's mother was a lady. And, you know, uh, and other than that, the... Most of the scholars that we have in the earlier times were women. So the women were scholars and they were in the mosque being scholars. But the imam position is something that, uh, you know, it's, it was difficult for them. They would not be able to bear the duties. So they were not given this obligation. I hope that in response, Jane, to uh, the idea of women and ordination in the Catholic Church. The root of that 
uh, belief in our Catholic Church or that teaching in our Catholic Church goes back to our Jesus. And our Jesus choose the kind of idea of that everybody has roles to play. And these roles that we play are equal. And Muhammad has referred repeatedly to the idea of even though people play different roles, that there's an equality. And we would say in the church that when Jesus chose to, quote, ordain men, sometimes we think that the reason he did that was because it was a patriarchal society at that time, and that he was living in a patriarchal society. So therefore, he was just representing the society that he was living in by putting men into these particular roles. That does not fit in with the Jesus we find in the scriptures. Because the Jesus we find in the scriptures is totally countercultural. He was he took issue with everything in their society. And he took a stand on issues in their society that were his stand was different from what they were used to. And he got into many he got into trouble many different times. So we as a church over a period of 2,000 years, have followed along that guideline that since that was what Jesus did, and we don't believe he did it because he was representing the society at the time, but that he did it because who knows why. But he did not do it to create one person better than another, or one person to have power over somebody else. That is not the purpose of ordination. Ordination, which is a term we use in our Catholic tradition for those who become priests and deacons, that does not give you power over somebody or make you better than somebody. It's not about that idea of becoming better for somebody. Is it possible that in the Catholic Church in the future that um, there could be women ordained to the priesthood or to the diaconate? Is that possible? Uh, I would leave that totally in God's hands and say anything is possible. You know, when you're dealing with God, I'm not going to get in the way, you know. But for us, in dealing with Jesus, we're dealing with God. And I have no doubt in my mind that Jesus never intended to make women less than men by ordination. Our Jesus gave everything he had to bring this dignity to women, even in the midst of a patriarchal society, and give equal dignity to men and to women. So I think it's important that we realize that this equal dignity between men and women is a key element. 
And we do not view ordination as making one more dignified than the other. Uh, if I can add to that uh, just a bit. Um, you know, one thing that uh, I actually want to know also from our respected scholars, uh, um, in, our, in Islam, we, in one narration it comes that 124,000 prophets were sent. And in one narration comes 200,000 prophets were sent. And uh, all of the prophets were men. So, you know, I have a question uh, because I'm also ignorant of this. So I wanted to ask the scholars that um, if they could tell me also if there were any women prophets in their respected um, knowledge and traditions. Uh, number two, you know, there are four women that our Prophet Muhammad uh, talked about that are the best of mankind and womankind. And we are supposed to follow in their footsteps and their example, especially the women. So number one is uh, the mother of Jesus, which is Mary. And uh, there's a sp- special chapter in the Quran for her. And uh, it has some very beautiful verses there. We learn a lot from her life, her childhood, how she grew up, and uh, um, some of the miracles that happened with Jesus. The second woman that's mentioned in this tradition is, her name is Asia. And she was the wife of the Pharaoh. And she accepted uh, the religion of Moses. And she was uh, uh, tortured. And, uh, you know, there's a very amazing... Uh, supplication that she makes, and it's mentioned in the 27th chapter of the, or 28th chapter of the Quran, and it's an amazing uh, supplication, and she asked to be uh, close to God uh, at, at her last time. She was being crucified, and there was a uh, rock, a huge rock placed on her, and she was being tortured. And at the end, she started to smile. And the Pharaoh said that, look, you know, she's crazy. She's smiling and she's being tortured. And our traditions say that she was seeing her place in paradise. And that's why she was smiling. So she's one of the women. The third is the, the wife of the prophet Muhammad, whose name is Khadija. And the prophet was 25 when he married her and she was 40. And she was twice widowed. And this is his first wife. And all his children are from her and no one else. Uh, she had four daughters. And she was a businesswoman. And he worked for her. So it shows that women at that time were doing business. And it shows that, you know, uh, she's a role model. And she's the wife of the prophet. And she was older. And we learn a lot from her life. And the fourth woman is the daughter of the Prophet Muhammad. Her name is Fatima. And she's known as the Queen of Paradise. So these are women that Allah honored, God honored, and the Prophet honored. And he told us to walk in their footsteps. Uh, You know, a lot of times people ask me, why do you have a beard? So I tell them 124,000 prophets had a beard. So I keep the beard to follow in the footsteps of the best of mankind to God. And why do you wear this? I tell them because the prophets used to cover their hair. 
why do you wear a robe? They used to wear long, simple, modest clothing. And in one of the traditions, it comes that the best color towards God in our tradition is white. So you will see many Muslim men on the day of Friday, will, they'll be wearing white. And, uh, you know, so our religion teaches us to follow in these people's footsteps. And it is teaching us to follow in the footsteps of these honorable women mentioned in the Quran. So, so I, I, I struggle with the way the, our traditions, I mean, I think actually our traditions are very similar in terms of lifting up women and lots of women role models and, and different but equal. I think we'll all agree that different but equal is, is our tradition stand. All of us. Um, I think where, where I'm different than, I think our traditions are less different than the progressive traditional line of our approaches to our traditions. I'm as different from the two of you in some ways, and your interpretive histories of gender relationships with, within the religious tradition, as I am from an Orthodox rabbi. And, and that is that when we talk about like the women who, that we're supposed to model ourselves after, it's a very traditional understanding of that role. And the women themselves have not been included in the halls of power where the decisions are made about which parts of the tradition to live into the same way for 2,000 years and which ones to evolve. I think that's the difference for me between a progressive approach to a religious tradition and a more traditional approach is, is to, is that women in reform and reconstructionist and even conservative Judaism are the ones deciding what we want to live into as our models and what parts of our tradition need to change because we women no longer want to live into a traditional 2,000 year old understanding of what our role can and ought and, and should be. Yeah. So I think that that's really where the the differences for sure. us. Well, well I think part of the other issue is that, you see, we view ourselves as a church, you know, as being challenged to be a leader in a secular, humanistic, hedonistic, rationalistic society. So we, as a church, as a Christian church, as a Catholic people, we're challenged to be leaders in that. So, for example, and Mohammed made reference to it earlier on, we see family disintegrating before our eyes in our American society. We see family being destroyed and disappearing. We see confusion in family. Now, when we look to our God, and remember we're talking from, I am talking from a root of faith. I'm not talking from a root of sociology. I'm talking from a root of faith. And my faith tells me God is not confused about family. My faith tells me that my God is crystal clear about family. Now, other people's gods may not be, but my God is clear about family. That does not mean that other people's gods are bad and mine is good. But it's important that my God is clear about mom, 
dad, and children. And we call that family. And my God is clear on men and women are complementary to each other. They complement each other. They don't end up, they're not designed to be destructive of each other or to be better than each other. For example, it's not my role to carry a child. So I say sometimes facetiously, men and women will never be equal as long as men cannot get pregnant. As soon as men can get pregnant, all right? Now, if men could get pregnant, in my opinion... We would die out as a race. That we'd be gone. (laughs) There is no doubt in my mind, if men could get pregnant, it would only happen once, let me tell you. Uh, So, thanks be to God, it's not designed that way. But... In my opinion, and in our church's opinion, God is not confused about men and women and children and family. So we see ourselves as a church. Now, other people may disagree with us, totally, which is totally acceptable, all right? That's why we're having a dialogue, all right? A dialogue is not about trying to convince somebody else to believe what you believe, all right? A dialogue is not to make a judgment on what somebody else says, that they're bad and I'm good. That's not dialogue. A dialogue is, how do I understand the way that person thinks? I may not like the way they think, but how do I understand it? And the more I learn about them, the more I understand about the way they think. So for us as Catholics, we are rooted in that God is clear and God is not confused. And our role is to try to understand what God wants us to be and what God is challenging us to be and to make that real in a secular, humanistic, hedonistic, and rationalistic society. And let me tell you, That's a huge struggle. Uh, I have a a couple of other questions, but I am thinking that it might be time that we take a few questions from the congregation here, because I think that we... Congregation. uh, (laughs) Those those who are congregated in this space are the congregation, yes. So um, we do have... um, Are these... Let me see if these are live... Test, yes. Um, so if you'd like to raise your hand and we'll um, see if, um, you know, we have a microphone on that side and one on this side as well. I really am in awe being here and I'm glad you clarified, uh, Monsignor, what dialogue is. Um, I think we are really blessed to have three articulate people that have really summarized some wonderful concepts. Since I was raised in the same tradition as Monsignor, I'd like to address more to our very articulate rabbi, I love your humor and your wisdom, and to the imam. 
Monsignor, you spoke of Mary as a model that we've used in our tradition. I know that in the Holy Quran, there is ten times more written than we have in our uh, Christian scriptures. And so I wanted to ask uh, both the rabbi and the imam to tell us a little bit more of what your view is of Mary as a Jewish woman who gave birth to a Jewish man who was raised in a Jewish community and, and who totally influenced the world. I had a great aunt who was Jewish and she was once at St. John's Hospital and I went to visit her and she says, hey Tommy, look, one of our guys made it. <laughs> uh, and me dear Irish mother said, when one of my sons becomes Pope, then we women will get ordained. So who knows? But uh, could you tell us more about the tradition of Mary that I think is so beautifully articulated in the Quran? And then I'd like to hear what the uh, Jewish perspective is from the Hebrew. Well, the Quran has a lot more to say because, of course, our tradition, Mary happens after our scriptures. Um, but I would say just in very short summaries that Mary was a typical Jewish woman. Um, she didn't have the classic family. She didn't have, you know, the husband and, you know, support clan around her as she got pregnant and playing that role of the woman in, you know, in the private life of the family. She was, she was very much a woman who was brave and courageous and broke in many ways with the norms of her time, as did so many of our foremothers. All of our stories are about foremothers who were not fertile, you know, who had only one child often and late, and so were not the paradigmatic, you know, mother-wife role um, and I think Mary's very much in that tradition, you know, that I'm um, very much in that tradition of someone who's, who longs in some ways to have that be her role and, and for lots of reasons doesn't, and then lives fully into then what are the possibilities and what are the new things that are going to come about because of stepping outside of that traditional role. We in Islam, and um, no offense to anyone and no disrespect to anyone, and I'm I'm sure I'm in a safe environment where I can say what I feel and uh, no one will object and they will learn of what the Muslims think. Um, the people that are mentioned in the Quran that are righteous, we call them believers. And we do not, uh, you know, put a name of Christian or Jew uh, Jewish on them. We call them believers in God. And we all believe in the same God, uh, the God of Abraham. And, uh, you know, amongst the 124,000 prophets, uh, Abraham is known as the father of prophets. And he, in his lineage, many, many prophets came. One of the prophets that we believe, and which, which in our tradition is the second last prophet, about a little over 600 years before the Prophet Muhammad, is Jesus. And um, wherever Jesus is mentioned in the Quran, many places the name Mary comes. Jesus, son of Mary. And giving Mary honor and respect and dignity, 
There is no other woman mentioned by name in the Quran except Mary. Giving her respect. And when we say Mary, we don't just say Mary, we say Mary alayhi salam. May the peace of God be upon her. You know, we are, as children, we are uh, directed towards this and taught this. Um, the mother of Mary, it's mentioned in the Quran, she uh, was a very devout lady and she made a vow that when my child is born, I will let her be in the, the temple as a servant of the temple. And when the child was born, it was a girl. And it wasn't a boy. So she said to God, this is a boy and not a girl, but my vow is my vow, and I have let her be at your service in the temple of Jerusalem. And um, Zachariah was her uncle, and he took... uh, he, he took the responsibility of taking care of her. And she was given a special room. And uh, she, was a little, she was very young at that time in her, you know, she was a teenager. And it comes in the Quran that um, she was worshipping God in that little age the way no one worshipped at that time. And she became very close to God. And one time when Zechariah or Zachariah came Inside the room, he saw that she had food and she had fruits with her and no one had brought those fruits there for her. And they were fruits out of the season. So um, he was amazed and he says, Ya Maryam, anna laki Oh, Maryam, where did you get these fruits from? Where did you get this food from? Where did you get this sustenance from? So she said, This is from God. And he feeds and he sustains uh, without uh, any difficulty. So when Zechariah saw this, and he didn't have children at that time, he made a supplication to God that, Oh God, you know, give me a child as you as this child, and then he was bestowed uh, Yahya, or known as John, uh, uh, you know, as a gift. And he was also a prophet. Zechariah was a prophet. He was a prophet. And so the Quran mentions these miracles of Maryam in this way, and she was chosen. And she was one of the best believers of God and the best worshippers of God. And then she was uh, bestowed with Jesus and just like the Bible says, and she was a virgin, and, uh, you know, she gave birth to Jesus. And uh, we don't believe that he was uh, born on December 25th. (laughs) Uh, And it was in the summer. So, um, you know, it it mentions that the dates were ripe, and it was summertime. And uh, she was told to eat the dates after birth. And in those days, they used to fast. And in, in those days, when they were fasting, they would also have a fast of not just eating and drinking, but they would have a fast of speaking. So she came to the community and she was fasting. She was not speaking. So when they asked her, Ya Maryam, 
oh Maryam, where, where is this child from? You know, you haven't been married and whatnot. So she pointed towards the child. فَأَشَارَتْ إِلَيْهِ This is mentioned in the Quran. And then the most beautiful words came out of a little baby from the cradle, Jesus, may peace be upon him. And the first words that he said was, Inni Abdullah. I am a slave of God. And that's where we differ from, the, from Christianity. That we believe he was a prophet and he was one of the best of mankind, but he was a slave of God. Atani al Kitab. God gave me a book, which is the Injil, the Bible. And he has made me a prophet. And he has made me Mubarak wherever I go, blessed wherever I go. And he has ordered me to pray and give alms. And he has ordered me to uh, be good to my mother and so on. So this is something that's mentioned. I don't want to take up too much time, but this is mentioned in the Quran. Great answer to... That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Are there any other models for women in, I guess, uh, Christianity and Islam other than Mary? As important as that is, is there anything other than that that a woman can aspire to? Well, I mean, there are women who, for example, are infertile or who, for one reason or another, are not able to marry and have children. And I'm wondering what other roles your religion see for women who, for whatever reason, maybe they follow the Mary model, but also have other things they want to be. One of our great models uh, in modern day is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. And uh, we would see her as a wonderful modeling of our Christianity and bringing our gospel alive in her concern for the poor, the rejected, the marginalized, the downtrodden, and for women that are marginalized in their own society by their own people. So a modern-day woman for us would be Mother Teresa. Some of the other women uh, in our leadership down through the years, St. Teresa, we have two St. Teresas. One of them, uh, uh, Mohammed was talking about how in the earlier days the women were more educated than the men. And uh, in our case in the Catholic Church, that was also true. The women were the intellects. And today, to the present day, the writings of St. Teresa um, have had a huge influence on the thinking of the church. One of her sayings I use regularly, and that is she um, was giving spiritual direction. Uh, She was a spiritual leader for a priest who was trying to grow in his spirituality. So he would go to visit her regularly to get some insights. So one day when he went to visit, she said to him, Father, do you believe that Jesus loves you? 
And he says, oh, yes. She says, well, why don't you tell your face about it? And her approach to spirituality, even though her intellect was way up here, was very practical and very measurable. So that's two ladies from, like one from more the Middle Ages and the other from our modern day and age here. Other questions? For, for us, it's the Prophet Muhammad. He's the, he's the role model for every man, and every woman, every child. Um, the role model necessarily doesn't have to be a woman in everything. Um, for, you know, one time the, uh, Aisha, the wife of the Prophet, was asked, can you describe the Prophet Muhammad? She said he's the walking, talking Quran. So everything that the Quran is calling you towards, there are, uh, you know, 6,236 verses in the Quran, 114 chapters, and a little over 77,000 words, um, you know, compared to the Old Testament, New Testament, I think even compared to the New Testament, it's about one-fifth. So whatever is in there, he is the, he's the walking, talking Quran. So for every man, every woman, child, our role model is Prophet Muhammad and then his daughters, his wives, and all the righteous women and men of that time and age. And of course, whatever you know, we learn from them is not absolute. And whatever is in the Quran, it's not absolute. It's according to the time and age, you know, uh, we have scholars that interpret those verses. And, you know, in this time and age, we might apply it in a little different way than they would apply it at that time because of the changes of time. Did you have a question? Go ahead. Hi, I have a couple of questions, but they're connected. Uh, one uh, is for Monsignor uh, Kidney. I was confused, and I'd love to hear a little bit of explanation about when you said Jesus... Uh, chose to ordain just men. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I'm not knowledgeable about that, and I'd love to know more. Um, and I also would like to hear, uh, Imam Muhammad, you mentioned how in certain cultures they've kept the religion sort of prisoner from what it really should be. Do you see our culture as doing the same thing in any way? We still do live, even though in a modern society, I would say somewhat patriarchal society. Do you see perhaps our modern culture is still doing that same thing here in America? And I'm curious, are there any sort of splinter or progressive groups forming in your two religions that may not be part of the main movement, but are there any developments along those lines? In connection with the ordination part, to be honest with you, It's just a historical fact. Now, I haven't got a chance to sort that out with Jesus. When I when I get to meet him, I'll be saying, "You got to help me out with this here." You know what I mean? And (laughs) so it was just a historical fact that at that time that was the reality. And why or how? um, For us, what helps us to understand it as a Catholic people is, we do not view it as saying one is better than the other. 
or one is more dignified than the other, or one has greater dignity than the other. We do not view it that way. And we view it as a decision that was made, and here we are 2,000 years later doing the best we can to imitate our Jesus. Now, we mess up in so many ways, and uh, we, is it possible that, like I said earlier on, that could change in the future? Yes. Is it probable? I have no idea. In connection with, like, breaking out and doing something, is it possible for people to speak up in different ways? Um, in our Jewish root, and Amy would know more about this than I would, is we have women in the Old Testament that usually broke out of the norm. And uh, Amy made reference to Mary breaking out of the norm. And some of the women in the Old Testament that broke out of the norm, whether it was Ruth or Rahab, you know, uh, some of the, or Tamar, some of these women changed Judaism and changed the way of looking at Judaism from the way they used to, so the women challenged the change in some way. So, uh, is that possible in the Catholic Church today? Yes, definitely. Where you would have women speaking out of the norm, uh, always with respect and with dignity, you know, for each other. And uh, But to me, is it possible that we have women like that in our society? Yes, I believe it is. I happen to believe that Mother Teresa was one of those women that changed the world and spoke out of the norm. She disagreed with her own religious community and left her own religious community and started a religious community to do what she believed needed to be done and left the community of security to start from scratch. So yes, we do need, you ready? We do need prophets. And there's some Benedictine nuns in Duluth, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. They got some stuff going on, right? Mm-hmm. They are nuns mm-hmm. on pushing the, the edge. They are, they are mm-hmm. out there. They are. Mohamed? Um, cultures. We are living in a culture. We grew up in a culture. I grew up in San Diego and um, a very American kid and, uh, you know, maybe more American than the, the Americans. I would be, uh, I, I remember going surfing in the morning before going to school. So, I mean, that's pretty out there. <laughs> you know, most, most people don't do that. And, you know, you live very close to the beach. I wasn't living that close, but that's what we would do. Um, the culture that we have here, um, no one should feel that this is my culture. If I live in Pakistan, if I live in India, if I live in Indonesia, Russia, wherever, this is the culture and everybody should adhere to this culture. Um, there are things that are good in every culture. And there are many things that... Muslims enjoy in the culture that they live in America and they might not have that in their own countries. But the other cultures, 
they are also seeing things in a modern society which does not appeal to them. So is their culture inferior or superior? You know, we are not there to judge. Um, one of the things that uh, a culture, you know, religion is a set of rules. And God has given us these rules. These are the do's, these are the don'ts. And if you go according to this, you will live a prosperous life and progress. Um, when there's a culture where people are demanding freedom for every single thing, then sometimes we might have difficulties. We might have different opinions. Um, in the culture in these Muslim countries, uh, you cannot even think of same-sex marriages. It is just a big no-no. There's no way it's going to happen. Um, where I grew up, we had no bars. We had no gambling casinos because this is part of that culture and part, you know, a lot of things that they, see, uh, they have learned from Islam, it has become their culture. Um, one of the things that they will notice over here is pornography is a, a big revenue in the western part of the world which you know is unheard of over there i mean it is there but it is not a source of revenue and uh, i was listening to a lecture it is bringing in more money than the nfl the nba the nhl and the mlb uh you know so this is part of that culture where there's freedom you have freedom to you know, do some things that you will not find freedom over there. But, you know, when you have that type of freedom, there are some negatives and there are some positives. So that culture, uh, it has some negatives as the way the, the treatment of the women, because of protecting them, they went overboard and now they don't even come out of their houses. And, you know, every time they show these pictures of Afghanistan and the women are in those whales and there's nets and it's, you know, it's, you know, you can't even look at them. <laughs> you know, it's difficult. But that's not Islam. That's that culture. So it has some negatives. So I wouldn't say there's one dominant culture that should be, you know, throughout the world. Every culture has its good and then, unfortunately, it has its bad. Well, it's five after nine now, and I think we would probably all enjoy being able to stay here until 9.30 or 10 asking questions, but we do have the luxury of having one more of these evenings together, and that is on March 19th, and we will be the guests at the Culver City Mosque where uh, Sheikh Mohammed will be hosting. And we, the congregations we'll all have, since it's a little outside of our community, um, on our websites and in our bulletins, there will be information about directions and, and all of that. But uh, the, the topic for that evening will be myths and myths conceptions of the religion. So we talked a little bit about that tonight, but if you had questions that you wanted to ask about that, we do hope to see you all a month from tonight at the Culver City uh, King Fayed Mosque. And, and I think we were exploring a bus to go. We oh, okay. talked about exploring um, taking a bus for those of us who... Okay. 
would be um, interested in doing One that. inconvenience that we might have is that, um, you know, the times of the prayers in the mosque, they keep changing. And, uh, I, you know, we've had the last two events at 7.30. Uh, 7.30 or around maybe next month, it might even be 7.45 is the, the, the last yeah. prayer of the day for the Muslims. So we might have to delay it till 8, if that's okay, um, because that's where the, uh, you know, sorry to say, but uh, uh, that's when the congregation will be for the prayers. The prayers take maybe about 15 minutes. Um, they, they take about 10 minutes uh, in the congregation and then about 5-10 minutes of, you know, the people make their uh, individual prayers. Well, look for information in your congregation's uh, website or bulletin and we'll have that information available. So uh, we at Corpus Christi would like to thank you all for coming and our panelists for giving us a little more information.